Struggling with the demands of a newborn daughter and a special needs son, today's guest developed insomnia. Her doctor prescribed benzodiazepines, but dependency followed. Melissa Bond shares the story of her journey of addiction and recovery this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week we're joined by author Melissa Bond, whose new memoir of addiction, Blood Orange Night, will be published this summer. Melissa, thank you so much for being with us. An absolute pleasure. Thanks so to you both. We're going to spend some time talking about the new book, but Let's talk a little bit about you. You are an author, a narrative journalist, a poet. What drew you to the written word in the first place? Um, so Jim, I've, I've heard this incredible quote that I think speaks to my experience, which is writing is not a vocation, it's a condition. I was born with that condition. My mom tells this story of me writing on my, I would pull back my sheet at night and write on my um, mattress. So from the time I could write, it was my way of sort of stitching myself to my experience and, and exploring my world. So I've done it since I was little. When did you discover though that this was something that you could do for a living? I think, um, for a long time, I didn't think it was something I could do for a living. But when I discovered narrative journalism in my late 20s, I thought, oh, this is the place where I can marry the part of me that loves to dig deep into topics and create a narrative that will really grab people. And that felt like the trajectory that I was, I had planned on following. So you, you began writing, you began writing professionally. Uh, and then mm -hmm. in 2008, you married, and soon thereafter, you had your first child who was born uh, with Down syndrome. Tell us about right. that, that period of your life, because that really is the beginning of Blood Orange Night, which, which I just want to say is such an incredible book. It's just really astonishing. But go ahead. Tell us about that period in your life, and then we'll get into the book a little bit more. Yeah. Wow, Wayne. Um, I, I think it's important to say that I had never met anyone with Down syndrome in my life. And we did not know. Um, I had had a number of the tests, but I just was uh, profoundly naive, um, I think, about the possibility of having a child who, you know, had any kind of genetic, you know, marker that was different. So we didn't find out he had Down syndrome until the fifth day after he was born. And I think there are two things that I will say about that. The first is that we had those first four days to absolutely fall in love with him. And I feel grateful for that because if we had known ahead of time, I think I would have latched onto the diagnosis and had a lot of fear and uncertainty. Um, but as it was, we had, we had five days, four days, 
And I was so deeply in love with him that that discovering that he had a this that would make him a different human in the world just felt like um, it amped up my mama um, wolf energy tenfold. So it was a sense of this is going to be a different experience in the world, but I am so in love with this human that I will find out what he needs and I will make sure he has the best best life possible. So, so this happened uh, during the Great Recession and, and during that period, in addition to the birth of, of your first child, Finch is his name, a lot of other things happened. Uh, your, your career uh, in terms of earning income from writing uh, hit a wall. You, you lost a job. Uh, leaving your husband, a landscaper, as the sole source of income. And also during this period, uh, you became pregnant with your second child. So this is a lot of, I mean, this is a lot, a lot of stress. Talk about that, all of this happening in, you know, roughly a one year, just over a year, year period of time. All these stresses, new motherhood, losing a job. Talk about that. Yeah. It's, you know, when they talk about life stressors, we, we really hit like a number of them um, in a really short period of time. So um, it was amazing. I, I, I'd finally kind of settled into this career of being a narrative journalist and was really excited about moving forward. I'd sort of thought, oh, I'm, I'm following the footsteps of Malcolm Gladwell. This is what I want to do. And um, as you said, it was the Great Recession. We had hoped our magazine would survive, but there was there was one week where uh, on a Wednesday, I um, just had this impulse and I took a pregnancy test. I was, I was in a yoga studio, um, peeing on a pregnancy stick, <laughs> which is, it's, it's a scene out of the book because it was so hilarious. And I discovered I was pregnant that day. Two days later, on a Friday, we were all corralled into this room and the publisher's son told us that the magazine was folding. We didn't have enough money. So within one week, um, I discovered I was pregnant. I was out of a job. Um, my husband at the time was feeling a tremendous amount of stress for capturing you know, all of us. And I think, um, there was no way for me to understand kind of the layers of stress and what was peeling away from me, this identity of being this professional and writer. I suddenly was um, kind of left with this sense of, okay, who, who am I now? Who is this person now that is pregnant and has a child with a disability and my career um, has hit a, has hit a wall, and there there didn't seem to be a, a path for me at that point. Yeah, Melissa, so you you talk a little bit about uh, your work as a narrative journalist. Did you ever think that you would be the subject of your own work? Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> Jim, a memoir is the last thing I'd ever imagined myself writing. I was a fiction writer. I loved, I, I had interviewed John Huntsman Jr. I was really, really interested in other people and their stories, but I'm a very private person. And so to have myself as my own subject was literally the last thing I ever wanted to do. Well, and, and there, there's, there's some profound courage in this because you don't really 
I mean, we're with you in that ladies' room at the at, at the yoga studio. <laughs> we 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 learn a lot about you and a lot about the, the some of the challenges that you faced. How, where does that courage come from? To share that much with 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 your audience. Yeah, I think. Um, Anytime people go through uh, a, a, any kind of trauma, there's there's this sense of um, I became to some degree background to my own story. I realized that my story, if it was just my story, that wouldn't have been nearly as interesting as the fact that I discovered that this was the story of hundreds of thousands of people. And it felt as though I was really the person to, to hopefully tell it and, and make a difference. And so somehow bearing myself totally, even though it feels like an act of courage, it, it, it to me feels like the only gift I can give to help make a difference. So th that's where I get the courage from is the fact that, you know, hopefully it will really significantly impact some other people in a way that helps. So in terms of impacting other, <coughs> other people, excuse me, the, the main subject, at least in terms of, of a chemical of a drug, is benzodiazepines and addiction. And so you became exposed to those, began taking those during your pregnancy with your second child, Chloe. And that's because you had terrible insomnia. I mean. Mothers of infants often will, will go, you know, with very bad sleep, and some do have terrible insomnia. But you, you seem to have, like, the worst possible case. You were getting one or two hours of sleep, and it was really affecting, you know, your waking hours, obviously. Talk about that and what led you to get, uh, to become yeah, addicted. Wayne, it was, a, it was, a, it was the most, one of the most horrific um, experiences I've been through in my life. And it came like a shot. I mean, it was literally one night we were going to bed. Finch was six or seven months old. And I felt as though I had taken an adrenaline shot to the heart. I sort of, you know, gasped and sat up in bed and I felt my body flooded with this adrenaline. And, you know, pregnancy is a bizarre experience to go through it and amazing, but your body does all kinds of things. And I was up the entire night and I remember thinking, this, this doesn't make sense. This is not what the body is meant to do. And, um, and you're right, it was night after night of, of getting one to two hours of sleep a night. Um, I did research on, on what <laughs> CIA interrogation, you know, enhanced interrogation techniques are, and they qualify 45, 48 hours without sleep as being an enhanced interrogation technique. And I did this for it was probably a year and a half before we were finally able to kind of get it under control. So there's a sense of um, the body almost coming apart. My cognitive abilities were significantly impacted. There was one day where I remember leaving Finch in his little, uh, you know, he had this little chair that I would put him in with little dangling hippos and I couldn't remember where I'd put him and I had just put him on the bed, but that, that sense of any kind of being able to track what I'm doing as a mother or as a human, it was, it was terrifying and hallucinations. I mean, um, and, and with pregnancy, all the doctors that I went to, they said, you know, there's nothing we can do. You're pregnant. So 
do some art. <laughs> you know, they were really at a loss, which was which was equally terrifying. So, so during this period, you began to search to find a way to sleep. You went to a therapist, you went to a shaman, you went to a sleep clinic doctor and, and other people. And eventually you are prescribed Ambien, which is a benzo, and a Benadryl booster. And that does give you sleep for, for a little while. When you were prescribed those, was there any discussion from the prescriber of the risks of addiction and the type of horrifying addiction that that is, which is different than opioid addiction? And we'll get into that later in the show. It's an important distinction. But were you warned that this could be completely disastrous? Might give you a little sleep for a little while, but the end result is going to be horrific. Yeah, not not once. Absolutely not once. And, um, you know, I remember very specifically that, you know, it was very well-intentioned nurse midwife that prescribed the, the Ambien, which is a, a Z drug. Um, they call it a Z drug. Uh, I, I know that it's very similar to benzodiazepines, but it locks into the, the um, GABA receptors at a slightly different um, position, but very similar. And there was not only any no discussion about addiction potential, but there wasn't, I think, an awareness of the nurse midwife that these should not be taken long term. Um, and, and, and this is unfortunately very, very typical to this day. There's not an awareness of what the medical literature says as opposed to what our common prescribing habits are. So I, I was under the impression I was given this uh, prescription. I had thought it was safe. Did did it did it work for a time? Did you get some relief from the initial prescription? I, you know, Jim, I got, I, I the first night, the, uh, I I slept for about seven hours, and then it would it the efficacy waned pretty radically. So I I think within a couple of months, I was getting again, maybe three to four hours sleep a night, yeah. and. With pregnancy, there are a lot of strange things that happen in the body. And so I, I realize now, in retrospect, I was having a lot of side effects that were probably part of the interaction with the drug. But, you know, I didn't know because I was a pregnant mother. So can you walk us through that, that escalation from that initial, so the insomnia, the initial prescription, the waning efficacy, how does that lead to addiction? Um, well, I want to make a really quick distinction here right now. So um, when we talk about addiction culturally, there's there's a sense that people are using um, whatever kind of drug to to get a high or to escape their life. And, and um, it's tricky because culturally there's there's a lot of, of shame around that. Stigma. What yeah, what what I experienced was, um, there was no desire to take the drug at all, but there was a desperation and a and a physical dependency that that you know we now know happens within the period of five days to a couple of weeks. So with that dependency, what happens is if you stop taking it, or even if you if you slowly you know try to reduce your dose, there's a radical uptick in in symptoms. You can get rebound insomnia. You can have heart palpations, you can, um, with, with, with the benzodiazepines, you can have a fatal stroke or a psychotic break. Wow. None of, none of which uh, did I know at the time. 
We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is author Melissa Bond, whose searing and personal account of accidental addiction to benzodiazepine, Blood Orange Night, will be published by Simon & Schuster on June 14th. You can follow Melissa on Twitter at mbondauthor, M-B-O-N-D-A-U-T-H-O-R. So Ativan and Xanax get added to the mix here. Yeah. And you've agreed to read um, a passage from the book, which is where the title of the book comes from. Um, and I'm wondering if you can read that for us now. This is like so many passages in the book, so powerful. Yeah, yeah thank you. So um, I'm going to show the book just because I'm, my, my heart sings with um, what the um, Simon & Schuster has done with the cover. It's beautiful. Um, and I want to give a little bit of context around, around the reading. Um, this is a, a period in which I've realized that the, the Ativan is causing tremendous uh, withdrawal symptoms to the degree that I'm barely, barely able to function. Um, and so this is the night that I have cut my dose. I've realized that I've got to get off these drugs. They're, they're turning me into a disabled human being. So I cut just a tiny, tiny bit off of the pill and I wake up in the middle of the night to my daughter crying and I've run down her room to try to pick up her little bread loaf body out of the crib because she's still nursing. Um, and I have what we later find out is a stroke. So this is from the book. The roar rises and fades. Heat runs like a fierce howling wind up my back. I don't know where my body ends or begins. Colors explode in my vision, raging like a wildfire through my head. The blood orange night turns red and screams through my eyes. The room tilts around me. Consciousness shuts again. Velveteen black, silence. Time stretches and disappears. A dark figure hovers at the doorway watching me. I can feel the dark like a cold fabric wafting. I can feel death wait and then turn, hiss. And then there's nothing, a long time of nothing. That's incredible. Um... Uh, Melissa, can you put into words for us the the desperation you had to feel, um, realizing that there was something going wrong, and how do you get out of it? Boy, I've I've tried to um, this, I've tried to communicate this to 
people, and I think the best way I've landed on it um, is um, if you have a medical diagnosis, let's say you're diagnosed with MS or a brain tumor or cancer, there's something you can point to. You say there, we see what's happening, what's causing all of these these things, and we know what we can do to treat it. And, and you have a community that kind of comes around you and can support you and bring casseroles. And my experience was this radical sense of exile from not only my own body, because I was just wrapped in the skin of pain all the time, but um, from, from my family and friends, because no one knew what was, what, what was happening or what the problem was or how we could help. Um, and then from, you know, from my own sense of self, because I thought, and there's also this sense of like, am I crazy? What, what's happening? So it feels as though it was this sense of like traveling through the desert and having no, um, compass and no sense of how I would get home, did, but knowing I had to. It was, it, did you become depressed? I mean, I, I don't know how you wouldn't. Oh, Oh, I think depression is absolutely. I, w I was radically depressed. I mean, the emotions, I was stripped absolutely raw and, and it was a desperation. I mean, there were times where I thought, why go on? I, I don't know if I can go on. So eventually you begin to do research. I mean, in the fog that you were in, and fog I think is probably you know a mild term to describe what was a nightmare. In the early stages, research didn't occur to you. If you had not been there, you probably would have. But eventually it does occur to you. And you begin to, you go online, you find Medline, you find uh, a scientist in the, in the United Kingdom, and, and you begin to learn about benzos. Talk about that discovery and, and how, um, how dramatic and horrible it was to learn what was really happening to you and what was really causing it, which were drugs that were supposed to help you, quote unquote, sleep. Right, right. I call them um, I call them pharmaceutical hammers. And um, I have a number of people that ask me, you know, are you are you just totally anti-drug at this point? And I say, no, you know, no. We create tools. Um, you know, in Western medicine, we have tools. They are many of them incredible. And unfortunately, we also have a system that um, slides past what is prescribed by the medical literature and and we start having habits of prescribing that are that are extremely damaging and for which we don't have any kind of clinical tests so that's what what i had found was that the medical literature was all there um it wasn't that hard to find but the awareness culturally and this includes with clinicians doctors you know gps they were prescribing far outside of what the li medical literature recommended. And the awareness of the dangers of that was, was not, uh, not there. It was, you know, this, this woman in the UK that you referenced, Dr. Heather Ashton, who has, has since passed, she really has done m more research. Um, you know, she, I don't know when she started, but she researched benzodiazepine withdrawal symptoms for 30 years. And she really was the anchor and the only real strong um, research I found on on what it was like to withdraw and how radically uh, difficult it is. So you depict this correctly as an epidemic. 
And there's another drug epidemic, and that's the opioid epidemic, which I, I think it's fair to say more people know about, have heard about, there's been more press on it. There's been far less with benzos. Why do you think that is? I mean, obviously this is dangerous and, and can be lethal, as you, you yourself said. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, um, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that there's so much awareness about opioids at this point. Um, and one of the things, that was one of the questions that I had was why, you know, why didn't I know? Why, why didn't my doctor know? Why wasn't I informed? And one of the ways I describe benzodiazepine epidemic as a shadow epidemic because the impact that it has on the body, it, it is much more difficult to actually have an overdose with just benzodiazepines than it is with opioids. So opioids um, be, became so terrifying because people were overdosing and it, it, it had a really radical quick lethality. Um, with benzodiazepines, there's a dismantling of the brain that happens over time. So many of the body systems start to um, become disabled. People find they're having GI issues. For me, I thought I had either a brain tumor or MS because I was having all kinds of uh, neurological disorders. My balance was off. I was falling all of the time. I had bruises all over my body. I couldn't remember anything. But what happens is a lot of people will think, I have something wrong with me. They'll go to a doctor. The doctor will say, hmm, you have some kind of GI disorder. Let's do all these tests. They get medicated for something else. And they don't realize that what's happening is their brain is, is be, being disabled by these drugs. So the, the, um, the, the terror is that people are sliding into disability because of the drugs and they're thinking it's something else. Melissa, we've got a little bit more than a minute left here. Uh, I'm curious, how are you doing now? Oh my gosh. Um, I would say anyone that has gone through a radical trauma when, <laughs> when it feels like life is possibly over, coming out of that, um, every day feels like spring. I being a mother. I adore being an author. I adore the opportunity to help other people. And my, and my body for the most part is, is healed. I still have, I think I will always have a, a more sensitive and um, I, a nuanced system that I have to be cautious with, but I feel like one of the lucky ones. I, I have recovered and every day is like spring. Is, is, is there some, we got literally about 15 seconds here, is there some advocacy that, that, that emerges naturally from writing a book like this? Ask the question again, is there? Is there some, some sense of advocacy that emerges from writing a book like this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel uh, a sense of if, if I can help one person, or many people have an awareness so they don't go through this kind of suffering, um, it, it makes it worth it. Well, Blood Orange Night is a remarkable book. And Melissa Bond, thank you so much for being with us today. That is all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.